You have reached a phone call from Paul. Prepare to be entertained and moved. A chat with Ben Lerner. Part 1. Hello. Hello, is this Ben Lerner? This is he. Hello, Ben. This is Paul calling you. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you took the, this phone call from Paul. I'm I'm really delighted. It's How, my pleasure. Well, you have a sleepless, you have a sleepless interlocutor. Well, you know why? Why sleepless? Because the baby is at her most alert at night, and then Lucia is waking up intermittently and making various demands. More more than the previous baby. Um, Marcela, the new baby, is up more at night, but the difference is the algorithmic increase in demand that comes from having two children and not one. But you know, you know about that. I do that. know that. And, you know, one thing that I really didn't want was uh, to be outnumbered. Yeah. I really, really didn't want outnumbered. So now, instead of another baby, we have a puppy. We had who to does, move. Who does the puppy side with? Yeah, well, we had to. We had to. We had to move, um, as I think you know a little bit. We yeah. had to move, and um, I think Barbara believes that it's 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 good to add chaos to chaos if there's already chaos. So we we have a puppy that is maybe two or three months old, whose name you might appreciate is Bartleby. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah, it's not going to be very obedient. It's probably, but it's not. It's not going to be very active either if it follows its name. It's not going to be active. It's not going to be obedient. And what always struck me about um, about that story, which I think, um, together with the lady with the lapdog, is my favorite short story in any language, really. It's one of my. It's one of my. Two or three favorite short stories, certainly. Which one? Bartleby. Bartleby. Why? Yeah. I mean, it's like a founding document of the anti-hero who like refuses to participate in the position society is projected for him, and who also kind of refuses to participate in the plot of the story. He just kind of he, it's a it's a it's a gesture of refusal that I think is all over literature. Oblomov, like in the Russian example, the great Hawthorne story that I think of as its um, as its twin is is Wakefield. Do you know that story? No, not at all. Wakefield, Wakefield is this guy who tells his wife he has business in the city or in the next town over or something, and he just rents an apartment next door and gets a wig and kind of watches his own life from a distance. Like, there's a funeral for him, because they assume he's dead, and he just doesn't do anything except become a spectator of the life he used to live. Wait, and then, Wakefield? Wakefield, W-A-K-E-F-I-E-L-D. Which would be the name of the protagonist. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's a great, like Bartleby or like Poe's, you know, story with the man in the crowd, it's also this great early story of urban anonymity, like where you can you can be just adjacent to your life by getting an apartment a few doors away. Um, in, uh, interesting, this, uh, what you just said, uh, adjacent to your life. Yeah. Uh, nearly, nearly as though you were 
you were living the 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 missed out life, but not quite. Yeah, I think it has. To, I think that a lot of those stories are about. Well, I mean, they're about the pleasures of literature, right? Which is both about, which is a kind of voyeurism of observing without being observed, certainly, but also that weird way that you both are having an experience and some kind of distance from your experience. And that's what happens with Wakefield. And Bartleby kind of shows up to the office, but he, he participates in a different world of his own logic or logic of non-participation. And, and also, also he, um, I think one of the most remarkable things for me in, in, in Bartleby is the fact that the, no nature, there is no nature in the story. There's no tree. There's nothing growing. That's true. Yeah, that's a good observation, especially when you contrast it with Moby Dick. That's right. I mean, I think, yeah, there's only the market. There's, there's, uh, you know, it's a story of Wall Street. Yeah, it's a um, subtitle. No, it, it, yeah, yeah, it's Bartleby the Scrivener and then colon a story of Wall Street. I think so. I think you're right. And I think that Wall Street in that sense becomes both obviously the place we know to be the place of commerce, but also a street made of, of a brick wall in some ways. Nothing, yeah, walled off. Grows, and walled off. Walled off, among, walled off from the sea, too. But, you know, if, enclosed. If and I, one of the ways that uh, I was convinced that w we would have another dog, par partly because there was no possibility of another child, was the, the name of that story and just just loving that that form of refusal. And I don't know if you, you probably have read, and if you haven't, it might be worthwhile reading, but Gilles Deleuze, the French philosopher, wrote an incredible introduction to the French edition of Bartleby, where he, yeah. he tried to explain to the French reader what I prefer not to could mean, how that comment w had no possibility of really possibility. Yeah. The Luz called it the formula or something. That's right. Oh, yeah. Of course you would know. Yeah. And, and I, tell, I, me, tell me, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, I, that's the, one of the few stories I read over and over again. Likewise. Uh, like, I mean, this is amazing. Likewise. And it's, it's a one story to which I always tell this, this story of, of my teaching years. My first class ever at Williams, I had a student who was very good, but always said things slightly off. And I did something that one really shouldn't do in America, which is shame, shame a student in front of a hundred other students. And I said, Michael, That's very dangerous. Yeah, very dangerous. You know that. I said, Michael, have you read this? Have you read Bartleby the Scrivener? To which he answered, not personally. <laughs> and it just felt, you know, perfect. Do you, do you teach it? Um, I've, I've, yeah, I've read it in classes before. I don't know. I, yeah, I've read it in company. I, it, I don't know if, it, if it's teachable. It's a gesture of refusal that kind of, I mean, it refuses any purpose, pedagogic or otherwise, in which you would enlist it. That's why it's. That's why it's so great. I mean, it's like that, you know, it's inexhaustible. But do um, you feel that, do you feel that about teaching literature in general? Or do you, do you feel that things are teachable? Do you, do you feel that creative writing is, is something that can be, can be brought about in an academic setting or in any setting really? 
Um, well, I mean, the good thing about being a kind of a poet or writer in the academy is you're kind of like less a scholar and more of a court jester. Like, you don't really have any area of expertise. And you can be Bartleby like because both, I mean, because people enlist you into committees that you can prefer not to because you can claim not to be sufficiently knowledgeable. But also, I mean, in the sense that instead of assuming like some position of authority in relation to the students, you can kind of just, you can read in, in, in company. And when you do that, I think you can l learn a lot. I mean, I think you learn a lot just from the, the various voices in a class and the diversity of reading experiences and the opportunity to test them against other readings. I mean, I also think with poetry, like, uh, yeah, I think you can teach, I don't think you can teach somebody to ha how to be a poet. I think you can teach somebody to have a, a more expansive sense of what meaning means when you're reading a poem. And maybe, I mean, maybe to recognize pleasure also. Yeah, and also just to, to, to think about, I mean, I think you can, re I, I've definitely learned a lot about the line from other poets, um, discussions of, of their own work or discussion of poets who count for them. Although often, you know, but it's less about what's true and it's more about the kind of energetic engagement of the text. Like my favorite example of this is that, you know, is that Robert Creeley developed this whole kind of poetics based upon his reading of William Carlos Williams' line breaks which he thought of as like felt silences or hesitations but then when Creeley heard Williams actually read and Williams just read right through his line breaks he was he was like horrified you know so you get this whole I mean it's not that Creeley was wrong exactly but he never would have developed that poetics if he had heard Williams read his poems early on it was based in a sense on a misreading or a kind of creative pretending that um, you know was really productive. So I think I think you can learn to be more sensitive. I just think it's less about acquiring some kind of like stable knowledge, knowledge. and more about, you know, yeah, some kind it, of You know, in, in, in I, I just have returned uh, uh, 24 hours ago from Greece. And in Greece, one of the things that accompanied me is your essay against, not against, but is it called The Hatred of Poetry or something? Yeah. Um, where, where again you talk about the breaks in a poem and you talk about that one poem you can't quite remember, which is so, yeah. short, which is so short. So, so this, this inability in a way is something that, that might haunt you already for a long time. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, and I mean, I kind of make the argument that this is really kind of a, an important trans-historical element of the art, but I'm also probably just desperate for it to be true because it justifies my own, you know, anxieties. But I do think that poetry and the teaching of poetry and the writing of poetry is really involved with failure. And with the kind of like the, and not just failure in a depressing way. And of course, there's a whole, I mean, we all know about the kind of romanticization of a suicidal, despairing artist. I don't mean that. I just mean with a sense that like, you know, what makes a great poem great isn't the way that it manages to actualize all the abstract possibilities of poetry. It's more the way it kind of dances with its own limitations and the limitations of, of language. And so, you know, it can be an interesting element of a poem that it's hard to remember. 
that can be an interesting uh, element of a line break that it invites misreadings or an interesting approach to, a, to a, you know, in the same way that what makes Bartleby great is the failure to understand. For me, it's the failure to understand you, Bartleby's motivation. Do you remember how long it takes for Bart the story Bartleby really to start? It, it, yeah, how does it start? So many, well, I can't even quite recall, but I remember when I reread it, which isn't so long ago, which goes very much in, I guess, in the sense of what you were saying is that you don't quite remember. I, I, I think in that regard, I'm sorry to bring him up again. I never mm-hmm. cannot not bring him up. It's, it, it sort of reminds me of what Adam Phillips says when he talks about the experience of reading, which is that it, it, Really, no, he he wouldn't say it doesn't matter that you don't remember, but what matters is the experience you're having of reading, and, yeah, and that totally. and that uh, the the particulars are important, and of course they're important at certain moments more than others. But I recall that really for finally the whole group of co-workers and and Bartleby's boss to be there, it takes 10 or 15 pages of a prelude. Uh, it's something yeah. that I will reread now that I have my own Bartleby. A question for me, though, is um, the first thing you said to me is that I'm, 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 you're catching a very, a very jet-lagged Paul, and I'm catching a very sleep-deprived Ben. Um, yeah. Do you feel that the sleep deprivation has caused you to think and write differently? Yeah, if you call it thinking. I mean, it's an interesting kind of sleep deprivation because the the weird thing about parenting, I mean, maybe it's, it's probably obvious, it's not weird, but it's weird to experience the reality even, even if it's obvious, is, is what a mixture of like wonder and boredom it is. So it's it's both like it's a of, it's a dirty secret, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so you know, I'm. It's like every day there are like many little lyric miracles, and then there are like a lot of diapers, and then there's a lot of um, confrontation with the tyranny of helplessness. I mean, that's a link to Bartleby. It's like I have no, there's no way to punish. Like, there's no reasoning with either of the kids. I mean, Lucia is very smart, but she's very shabby, and she what she knows is that like. There's no disciplinarian end game. Like if she throws her food, I'll say don't throw your food again. I'm, I will take her to her room and try to talk to her. But ultimately, if she prefers not to, you know, to obey me, there's there's nothing to be done except except repetition. Because it's not like I'm I'm not going to spank her or anything. Um, so I don't know it, but I you know so it's both like these miracles come out of her mouth and these really interesting formulations and. In, in poetic queries and then on the other hand like I spent five hours trying to get her to stop jumping because the neighbors below us are you know are upset about the about the noise and so do I don't know do you think do you think I mean are you are you writing for the moment I'm writing something about our conservation I and mean, I'm trying to write kind of many different things but I'm writing something about the kind of conservation department at the Whitney Museum and I've been reading all of this really great stuff about um, controversies in our conservation, which is basically the history of controversies. Um, And it's really, it's been kind of amazing to read about it with this new life in the apartment because I keep conflating thinking about artistic reproduction and futurity with like biological reproduction and futurity. 
you know, like you kind of, I'm, I'm like reading about how you care for a painting into the future or whatever, or the way a painting changes over time. And then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm watching this, you know, like the, <laughs> this infant become a toddler or whatever. So it, it all, it's all very confused, uh, into one kind of structure of feeling over here. And, 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 and museums, uh, I, I suppose the Whitney, but not only are trying to figure out how to make something that is fragile last. Yeah, I mean, in all kinds of ways. I mean, the, the new issues are both really new and really ancient, you know. I mean, because a work is, you know, there is no stable original. Like, you know, a work exists in time, so they're always changing and declining. And artists themselves have had hugely different attitudes towards conservation. You know, like Brock and Picasso didn't want, you know, for aesthetic reasons, didn't want their canvases varnished, but that was, they wanted them to decline if necessary, but that was kind of ignored by a lot of museums. That became a famous controversy. I mean, what I love about the controversies around conservation is that they're moments of crisis in thinking about time and value in a society. So, like, periodically there are these huge cleaning controversies where one group of people says they've got rid of all this gunk you know, that was like clouding the original and making it impossible for us to yeah. to experience the real artwork. And then the other group of people says, we've got rid of this really valuable patina. We've destroyed the original. These are totally revisionist. The same struggle reappears every decade or so, kind of similar to the way that debates about poetry reappear every decade or so. Well, I, All I, the poets I, I, got told you, I told you in uh, on the island of Hydra, where I, I just found myself, I was reading your your essay about poetry and 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 the difficulty, I suppose, of 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 approaching it in some way. And you you bring about in in a different realm the 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 quandaries and and debates that surrounded futurism. Yeah. And and you know, let's destroy the museums, let's burn down the libraries and and yet and yet, but you're right, I mean my access to futurism is as works in a museum and books in a library. And there's a kind of avant-garde logic that interests me where, you know, like part of the hatred of poetry that interests me is like one way the avant-garde often hates poetry is because it stays poetry, right? I mean, you, they make right. these artworks that are supposed to destroy the institution of art as a separate sphere of experience. And then instead they, you know, they remain artwork. So they become, they become the new, uh, you know, monikers of taste. They enter the canons that they right. wanted to eviscerate. And, and that highlight, and they highlight the importance of this form. Exactly. And, and, you know, this is, there's a lot of versions of this in museums as you get, you get all these works that are supposed to be radical. You know, the history of the museum is basically experimental. You get all these works that were supposed to kind of exceed the tradition of art that then become, you know, they, they, they become describable on a, a placard on the wall. And conservation is hugely involved with that, either the, the preservation of the radicalism of an original gesture, which is often a contradictory process, or this attempt to kind of neutralize or tame uh, an original work and make it a, a collectible and displayable and kind of saleable part of an archive, you know? Like, what do you do with the Dieter Roth works that are made out of yogurt? Do you figure out, a, like, a cool way to preserve yogurt, or do you let them die? You know, there are a lot of different interests involved in that process. What do you... I mean, 
do, do you have a view on this? Do you do you feel that some works deserve um, preservation more than others, or do you feel that it that the question is terribly posed? It's not a question. It's I think it's. I think it's. I think it's a. I think it's a really interesting question, correctly posed, but I think it's. I think it's not an answerable question in any kind of general way. I mean, you know, this conservator at the Whitney, who I really admire, um, it, you know, she just she she did the Rothko uh, Chapel. Like what happened with the Rothko dark triptychs at the chapel in Houston is that in the humidity of the chapel and due to some kind of instability in the paint, these black triptychs suddenly started having this white film, you know, like within a few years. And she, over many years, figured out like what the problem was and managed to get rid of the film. And I feel like that was a great effort at conservation. Um but when the when you're talking about like the network of cracks that appear in a painting over centuries, or you're talking about the smoke quote unquote damage in the Sistine Chapel that's from half a millennium of masses, I start to think of that as really bearing uh, a kind of aesthetic and historical charge. And I I miss the the smoke damage at the Sistine Chapel. So I don't know. I mean, for me, it's less it's less that the question is answerable and more that that it's always and that conservation is always an act of interpretation and it's always going to be more of an art than a science and the claim that you can have some kind of objective neutral uh you know approach to conservation without involving questions of cultural value seems to me to be a claim that's always false i mean you know i know more than one person thinking of the greeks i know more than one person who was going to be a classicist yeah and then and then learned that ancient sculpture wasn't in fact unpainted cool marble right. it was you know vivid poly, you know polychromatic stuff that looks kind of gaudy to our eyes like if you see reconstructions and you know we don't people don't restore we don't repaint that sculpture, you know, in the Met. There's like none of it's repainted because it so violates our notion of the classical. And I kind of like, you know, do you? Do you it's what, like what, what are we? What are we being faithful to? Uh, right, we're uh, being faithful to like a Renaissance and romantic yeah. notion of the. I mean, you used yeah. the word romantic before, and again here, I, I think here is 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 a, here 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 lies the danger. Um, right. Of a romantic view of of really of history, um, because things maybe things were not the way we were taught they were. Criminal Broads is a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law, and I'm the host, Tori Telfer. I'm a true crime writer who started Criminal Broads after realizing that I was uncovering far too many out-of-control and terrifying stories about criminal women to fit in a single book. So, if you like stories about female cult leaders, con women, women who undergo (laughs) seven sessions of plastic surgery to avoid arrest for 14 years and 11 months, uh, women who hung out with Bonnie and Clyde, or serious speculation about the deranged theory that Jack the Ripper was actually a woman, I think you'll like this podcast. Look for Criminal Broads on your favorite podcast listening app, or follow along at Instagram.com slash Criminal Broads, where I post a lot of photos so you can look deep into the eyes of some of the murderesses we'll be talking about. See you there! (laughs) 